0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Psalm Session. Uh, You've got me, your buddy Miles, and joining me on the phone yet again...
1: Hey, it's Brent here again in quarantine.
0: Hey Brent in quarantine, how's it going?
1: It's going, you know, I I think when the new edition of the Merriam-Webster Dictionary comes out, it's going to have words like quarantine, lockdown, isolation, we can go on and on, right?
0: Are those words currently not in the dictionary?
1: I, I don't know. I feel like they'll have a new context.
0: <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. So. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure those are current words. I don't know, but... Yeah. Isolation is, in fact, a word. <laughs> Isolation is, in fact, a word. Are you, uh, you've been keeping busy over there, or uh, how's, how's the home life been?
1: Uh, it's good. You know, we're still in uh, homeschooling mode, but um, as you know, we've got lots of plans uh, cooking behind the scenes for a Sound of Music that we'll be sharing soon.
0: Absolutely, and we're uh, we're pretty excited to do that. It's uh, it is going to be pretty cool. I think um, th- there seems to be this new term that everybody's using, and it's pivoting. You've been able to pivot. And I think the Sound of Music has been able to pivot in that we, uh, you know, we can't give you the usual Sound of Music Spencer Smith Park experience, but uh, I think we've created something that people are really going to enjoy. And, you know, it's our way of of keeping them engaged, keeping the community engaged, uh, giving back to artists. Artists are, you know, our hats go out to you all. It's, uh, I, I know artists are struggling right now. Ah, uh, the industry's been hit really hard and and I'm really hoping that through our our new platform we're going to be able to support some people out there and really give some new uh, tools and resources to this industry.
1: Well, I think that's what's really important is uh, doing everything that we can to be supporting uh, artists, supporting the industry, as you say, and and really all working to find some solutions that will you know sustain everybody after yeah. uh, after this is over.
0: Yeah. So look, we, uh, th- one cool thing about the world that we live in, uh, you know, being the, the modern age of technology is, um, we're, we're, we're apart, but we're still connected. So with the psalm sessions, we've been able to embrace technology and, you know, obviously Brent and I are in different places right now. And, uh, our guests are coming to us from all over the place. And today, uh, we have a very special guest that, uh, I know Brent and I are, are both pretty excited about. And, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, it is our pleasure to get on the phone here, the Canadian legend himself, Mr. Ian Thomas.
2: A.K.A. Dave Thomas's brother, eh?
0: Oh, I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> I wasn't. I I mean, okay, well, let's just make this about Dave. So how's Dave doing? And have you met Rick Moranis? <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: yes, and God bless uh, Rick for, uh, I guess, about three years ago after my son's uh, showmobile accident that left him a paraplegic Yeah, uh, Rick and all of the Second City gang all came into town and gathered at Second City and just did the most amazing fundraiser for my son it was uh, it was unbelievable it was Marty's idea, Marty Short's idea and um, <clears throat> it was just uh, it was powerful
0: that's amazing, and I, yeah, I mean, those SCTV guys, like that's, you know, that's a show I would I would love to see that one make a, a comeback and as much of that original crew as possible. Uh, that would well, be it's really, like
2: herding cats.
0: I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. So, uh, Ian, Gino you know award-winning uh, artist, you you've been you've been consistently busy for a very long time, and I I tip my hat to you for that. Uh, wh- what are you up to these days? I mean, we're all kind of in. Lockdown mode and uh how how have you been passing the time? What have you been up to? Well, writing.
2: Basically writing. I, I have I have two novels in the works, one uh memoir and uh a bunch of songs that are starting to pile up. Nice, nice. So just basically leaving a pile of creative
1: trash behind me is all <laughs> <I know. Absolutely
0: laughs> let, let's that.
1: uh let's let let me jump in here and say you know we um we started off the show uh weren't, weren't going to go there uh, down the brother dave road and we seem to go there right away so let's go let's go to another uh, spot that that i think is is automatic when everybody hears the name ian thomas right away they think of the song painted ladies Mm -hmm. Um, For me, uh, absolutely, truthfully, one of my favorite songs of all time. I have listened to that song over and over and over again. Uh, Number four on the Canadian charts, top 40 in the U.S. Do you actually ever tire of people immediately pointing to that song when they think of you or hear your name? No, not at all. I mean, in
2: some respects, they're your progeny. You know, songs are... um, you know that's not to say, and I don't even mind. I don't really get tired of playing it either because people want to hear it. You know, and and ultimately, um, <clears throat> most people who write or play want their stuff to be heard. And For sure, people with yeah. a performance itch, uh, you know, are a needy bunch. <laughs> you know, we need audiences and. Uh, Uh, And if audience wants to hear something, well, I mean, God, I mean, that's why some people tell the same joke over and over, Um, (laughs) because they know it'll get a laugh. So, um, yeah, I know some people have uh, tried to sort of, they're embarrassed by who they used to be, and in some respects, I am. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I listen to my voice, I hear a kid on, on some of those earlier recordings, and. You know, even some of the songwriting was, when I look at it in the production, I look at it now and I go, God, what were you thinking of? <laughs> um, but it's, it's a creative trail, nonetheless, of my own doing. So there it is. Uh, and hopefully, you know, between present day and when I started, You'll see some improvement. Nice.
0: Well and you know what, thinking of kind of present day and, and you've uh you breathed a lot of new life into these songs with your uh your album A Life and Song. Uh now that was with the was it the Hamilton Orchestra?
2: Well, we tried the charts with the uh the Hamilton Orchestra first just to fly them in the air and, okay. and hear how it sounded. I wanted to record that in Canada. Um but the musicians union um is so stuck in the heydays <laughs> of recording where where records were actually for sale and uh and you know if you put out a symphony record it, it might sell thirty or forty thousand units if it was a good record- recorder sure. uh which could justify the expense, but now with no sales. Um it was going to cost me ninety six thousand dollars alone to record the orchestra wow, and that 's excluding studio time,
0: yeah, wow,
2: and um, having been a film composer for the better part of thirty years, uh I have been abroad on a few occasions to record film scores, otherwise, I could not afford an orchestra. So the ninety six thousand bucks all of a sudden turns to twenty thousand dollars and makes it a reasonable proposition.
0: Yeah, well, and, and look, like I love that album. I'm a I'm a classically trained musician myself, and any time mm-hmm. somebody's collaborating with orchestras and symphonies and strings, it, you know, I absolutely love it. And uh, I was, I was, I was brushing up on some Ian Thomas for this uh, this phone call and. Uh, you know, little dreams on a life and song is an absolute home run. Absolutely love it. Um, yeah, the compositions are great. Like, and and you you've done a lot of collaborations outside of of obviously the orchestra. I mean, you've worked with some huge names. Uh, your songs have been covered by huge names. Um, you know, I'm just kind of looking at a, a some cheat notes here, and you know, Santana and Manfred Mann and America, Chicago, like. You know, how is it for you when you uh, you get these calls or you turn on the radio and you hear your song by someone else? Like, what's what's that feel like for you?
2: Well, ultimately, it's validating, I think, as a writer. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> because in, in many respects, those people are placing their careers in your song. So it's in your hands. You know, Santana, for example, the Shango album... Um, they weren't going to release it without a single. And there was no single. And then they finally agreed. Uh, uh, they got Santana to agree, look, we'll put a, sure, we'll do a single. Well, he was having a hard time writing one. And uh, I forget <clears throat> my publisher, but it was a friend of mine by the name of John Lombardo down there, knew he was looking for single material and sent him a copy of, hold on and bang, that was it. And he, he, they were able to put his album out. So in some respects, though, as an artist, that must have been very frustrating uh, yeah. to Santana uh, that they didn't, couldn't come up with a single themselves. Um, so, you know, it's a double-edged sword uh, when a, a record company has you you know, over the guillotine and, you know, we're not going to release without a single and we don't care who writes your damn single, just give us a single.
1: Because
2: basically record companies never really knew how to market records. It was all kind of just that they had marketing departments was kind of a joke because all they really did, if they could sell it to radio, radio would (laughs) would play it and advertise it and then it would show up in the stores. So, you know, I've always found, uh, record companies to be something of a joke from their mob-oriented origins <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> to how they sat idly by flying around in their private jets while the internet approached and uh with no way of uh of protecting music and and they you know when you you look at how the value of music has been debased it, it, you can really trace it to the record companies you know with the advent of videos um, it was up to the artists to pay for those videos in recouping balances from their percentiles, and then the record company basically funded MTV and much Music <laughs> yeah. with free products. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Free, bro- free. Pardon me. Free uh, productions for their broadcasting. All of these videos that you know that meant if you're if your record only cost you thirty thousand, well, you had sixty thousand to pay because thirty grand was about one of the cheapest videos, you know. <laughs> sure. So, <clears throat> so they gave music away, which debased its inherent value, and uh, and now here we have uh, a business where people's CDs are probably their only real values, like a calling card.
1: People are just, you know, basically streaming. Single songs,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Let's uh, let's keep going about some some of this talk about collaborations. This is really interesting. Um, You know, I I was uh, one of the folks who had the great pleasure to be in the audience when you did the HPO uh, collaboration from the Beatles with Love uh, last year. Mm -hmm. Um, How did you come to be a a part of, of such an amazing production? Well, I love Darcy Hepburn um my dad and
2: Darcy's dads, uh, they were colleagues at Mac, um, McMaster University. We came back to Canada. Uh, my dad had been doing his master's and started his, his PhD in philosophy at Duke University. So we were down there for three years. And then he came back to Mac right around the same time Lee or Darcy's dad, came back to uh, join the music or head up the music department, maybe at McMaster, and um, and then I've come to know Dar- know Darcy over the years, and um, and Darcy worked with me quite closely on the Life and Song project, and uh, <clears throat> when he was doing his Beatles thing, I mean I I owed him big time. He did, um, he worked on the arrangements for Long Long Way and Pilot. Um, even though they were Milan Kimlick original charts, um, <clears throat> he added to them, but in his, in the same genre as, uh, Milan's and just, just made them fantastic while being respectful to, to Milan. And I really appreciated his expertise. He's got great ears, amazing musician, lovely guy. So he's doing this Beatles thing. And, uh, he said, you know, it's not—it's not, it's not going to pay a hell of beans. It's a cast of thousands, um, and it's basically for symphony orchestra, uh, you know, to help put bums in the seats for uh, Hamilton Philharmonic, for the Hamilton Philharmonic Orchestra. So it was twofold. A, I love symphonies; they're dying all over the planet.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, to me, it's such an amazing. Uh, palette. It's such an amazing sonic canvas. Orchestral scores in film far exceed uh, synthetic scores to me. Um, I think they can move you like very little. Uh, Very few other things can. Um, So this instrument called the, the, the symphony orchestra that has evolved over hundreds of years, right down to the placement of interest in, instruments uh, as you sit in the listener in the, or, in the orchestra to create a sense of balance. Um, the evolution of that is remarkable and it's such an amazing instrument. So I love the Beatles. I love Darcy. I like doing a thing that involved the Hamilton Philharmonic. And uh I, I, we just had a laugh. And uh such a good crew of Hamilton musicians, Steve Strongman, um oh, we shared vocals on help and uh uh and Jamie Oakes, uh and uh Jamie oh I'm trying to remember the other guy who does the Paul McCartney show. Um <clears throat> And, of course, Bill Dillon on all the guitar parts. He was in the Boomers with me back in the 90s. He's basically an encyclopedia of Beatles Beatles guitar stuff. So the core of players uh, and singers was fantastic and um, just a joy. Um, I love all of those guys. All the Hamilton guys, like Steve and, and, and Strumman and Jamie Oaks, Myself and Paul Enson uh, on base, uh, we all do food raiser, uh, food bank fundraisers every Christmas. Nice, and uh, they're they're a bunch of really wonderful gentlemen and great players. So that it, uh, Beatles show was it was just fun, unadulterated it, fun.
1: Yeah, I think fun is the best word. It, it came across that way. You, you you guys were all kind of interacting and chatting, telling stories, talking to the audience, and it it, it was it was really a a fun, a fun night to, to, to witness Um uh, favorite, favorite Beatles songs. What's on the mm. top of your list? Well, that's
2: interesting, you know, cause I just finished listening to the, uh, the remix of the double white album, which I hadn't heard for a, such a long time. Um, but you can't get past, um, I think something is George Harrison's Yesterday, you know?
0: Mm, Yes. Uh,
2: Yesterday was just such a powerful little package in its time. And, uh, you know, much like Joni Mitchell wrote Both Sides Now when she was 19, it was only when she sang it recently that the song had any real power, because at 19, how much of life could you really have looked at (laughs) (laughs) from both sides now? So, you know, it, it's uh, um, that song is a, it's a timeless piece of music.
0: Well, and it, it so seems I, even more poignant now, you know. All of our troubles mm-hmm. did seem so far away yesterday, and now it looks yeah. as though they are here to stay.
2: <laughs> yes, and here we are back with the bubonic plague.
0: Right, here we are.
2: Now, you know, so, uh,
0: sorry, go mm-hmm. ahead, go ahead, please.
2: Well, so I would just say that, I think something off of that, uh, off the Abbey Road album. But I love that whole back end of the Abbey Road album, really. It's it's a collective hodgepodge of a whole pile of pieces from She Came In Through the Bathroom Window to, boy, you're going to carry that way. That whole tail end to me of that Abbey Road album uh, is my favorite Beatles thing ever. It beats all the single songs. It's just such a wonderful combination um of the four musicians. Uh it's it's just fantastic.
0: Absolutely. Now you know, I'm curious, when we look back at your career, now you, you started into the whole kind of film, uh, music, entertainment industry. You started into it quite young, didn't you?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now like, um, what, what was that like for you like being a young person coming into uh, you know this industry in in kind of what the 60 70s type of thing like how how were your early experiences
2: now is this specific to um, the entertainment industry or film
0: uh both i I would just love to hear like and and how did you kind of transition through like you've you've been a singer songwriter producer composer. Uh, you've worked with the CBC, like you, you seem to have dabbled in just about every corner of the entertainment industry. And I would just love to hear kind of how that evolution happened for you and, and what was the early days like? What started you in it?
2: Um, <clears throat> I was from a really young age fascinated with musical tones. I can remember as a child when I had the house to myself, my mother had this upright piano and I'd pulled a... The front up, so I could shove my head right inside the <laughs> piano, and I'd be holding a foot down on the sustain pedal and just playing these odd little improvisations with some dissonance, letting them ring off. And I was listening to <clears throat> how all these tones would appear as it rang off, which I later learned were harmonics and partials. And um, <clears throat> it was kind of. Uh, There was something about music that moved me and I could not, uh, I didn't know how to express it and I didn't really know what it was. So there was that sort of spiritual attraction and uh, the rest of it really was just walking to opening doors. Uh, You know, so I started playing guitar and uh, by the time I was I think when I was 15, I wrote my first song, and that song was such a, uh, it was really powerful to me, and then I sort of realized I was talking to my subconscious, and um, it ended up being such a satisfying experience that it was also something of of a drug. It's been said of writing that it's uh, an unmerited grace, (laughs) and I love that quote, because it's, even though you set out to write something, you may not necessarily come back with anything good. But when you do, it really isn't because of any particular talent. You just happen to be in position with a pencil and paper or an instrument at a, at the right moment. It's more akin to mining than it is creating,
1: <laughs> as far sure. as I'm
2: concerned. <laughs> um, so here I had this song, so then... I started writing more songs people seemed to like to hear them so I started singing uh with a friend of mine Nora Hutchinson and uh and then I started I got a phone call from SOCAN except in those days it was from BMI actually uh, Broadcast Music Incorporated and, and they heard I wrote songs and wondered if I wanted to protect them with BMI and they would collect on performances whenever they made it to radio so <clears throat> then that up, opened up a door to a publisher I started going to see all through grade 13 and I was going to go to university for music but then I signed with RCA that summer uh, of of grade 13. when I just walked out of the school and and basically three weeks later or four weeks later signed a recording contract and a publishing contract with RCA. So that door opened and then I ended up in the bars and uh, my wife got pregnant and I wasn't making enough money in the bars. So I applied for a job at CBC. I was willing to go in the engineering department or anything, but they had heard some of my uh, recorded work and uh, they wanted to hire me as a damn producer. So (laughs) that door opened. And while I was there, I wrote my first album and um, went to see some labels and Ross Reynolds at GRT signed me right out of the box. So that door opened. Wow! And um, so I left CBC and... You know, it wasn't rosy. I can remember being on tour, you know, just barely making ends meet again. Touring in Canada was always a costly proposition. And my wife called me in tears. She didn't have enough money for groceries for the kids. And I just thought, okay, this ain't working. Um, So long story short, just one thing always seemed to lead to another. Nice. You have to do some due diligence, of course, and point yourself in the right direction. Um I was interested in film composition, so I dummied up some, some film cues and 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 bang I started getting movies. I've I've been composer on I guess twenty two, twenty three movies wow. now. Um so all of these doors it was almost as though um actually the late Elizabeth Kubler Ross. She had a pretty interesting metaphor. She says, "You've got you've given a certain set of gifts, and if you do give your gifts some due diligence, your spirit guides will make things happen for you." <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm a doubting Thomas <laughs> but, by nature, um, but that really that was the sensation that I had that uh, I do some due. diligence just do some due diligence and things happened for me. So sure. my life's just been a blessing from the get go.
0: Well, congratulations. And I mean, like I say, your career, you know, you've been at this a long time and you've maintained, uh, like I, I called you a Canadian icon and I stand by that. Like that's, uh, you've done some truly amazing things over the years. And, you know, I, I know Brent's got a question here about this, but uh, we we need to ask you about, the Red Green Show. You know, like, <laughs> how did you end up on The Red Green Show, and what was that like?
2: Well, for years, I've done probably maybe 2,000 commercials. Sure. Uh, for years, I was doing over. They were actually feeding my family for a while. I was doing two or three commercials a week, and sometimes I'd be singing on them. Other times... They involved characters. You know, I was snap the Rice Krispie for about 20 years. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. And, you know, I was Clive Suckin' for Suckin' Pubs. <laughs> and, uh, you know, all of these, a whole slew of, you know, silly characters and straight characters. You know, I I I think one of my first voiceovers was for Hush Puppies, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so it was. Uh, you know, all of those commercials uh, led to. You know, little dribs and drabs. Some of them were acting, and I think Steve knew I did that stuff. So I got a phone call from Steve Smith, who said, uh, "Yeah, I got a kind of a." Apart, I, I wouldn't mind you having a run at Dougie Franklin on the on, uh, on this uh, Red Green show that I'm doing, and uh, <clears throat> he said, "You want to come over and play?" <laughs> and uh, so I, well, I said, "Well, let's let's maybe try one out." He says, "Well, we shoot. We'll probably shoot maybe six or seven in in a couple of days." So you know, we'd be signing you on for six or seven. So I went out and I did it. And so Doug, it was, you know, I did him as a kind of a feller from the United States of America, not the sharpest tool in the box. You know, somebody y'all might think might actually take Trump at his word and swallow some Lysol. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, that's the way I played it. And, uh, you know, it was fun, um, but by the sixth year, um, I realized I'm really not an actor. It doesn't interest me, so my passion wasn't there, and uh, so I thought it was time to sort of hang the hat up and, uh, and and let somebody somebody else who is seeking a career in acting have that opportunity rather than having it sucked up by a guy like me who's just fine doing music and you know
1: <laughs> I, I i love the stories that you're telling they're sort of all woven together that that uh, you know sort of seem to be your uh musical journey your your life's journey and uh, you know kind of talking about one thing leading to the next and these these doors uh opening for you and and also i'm sure some of them being intently opened because of your 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 effort and your tenacity and all of those things what would you say to someone new trying to launch a career in the music business? Now, if they came to you and said, Mr. Thomas, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for some mentorship. I'm looking some, for some advice. What, what do you say? How do you, how do you point them down a road? <clears throat> well, I think
2: probably in terms of pointing them down any road, um, I don't think I would I would enter that territory um, because these roads are often of our own design. What I would stress is that what are your motivations for writing? If your motivations for writing are because you want to become a huge star, okay, well, then you're probably going to be a derivative writer for the most part and because you're going to try and fit into the marketplace to get where you want to go. Um, and if that's your motivation, wanting to be a a big star, if that doesn't happen, you know, probably your creativity is going to dry up and you'll get bitter. Um, but if you're, now this is if you're a writer, obviously I'm, I'm more interested in the singer songwriter approach, people who want to be a big star and can put together a whole pile of machinery to make that happen. Uh, that's another form of the entertainment industry. I know nothing about, and uh, there's lots of people out there who do who have taken that approach and have managed to somehow make it. Like Michael Bublé, for example, he needed David Foster to, uh, to to make make his career kick off. He's always needed the songwriters, the right producers, you know, putting all the pieces of that puzzle. Um, together. that's He's a serious talent, and I I, I really admire uh, what he does. His joy in singing is is obvious. Uh, <clears throat> but I would be more used to a, a songwriter, singer-songwriter, in that um, I think that songwriting is more of an affliction, uh, or creativity is more of an affliction than it is a talent. And you do it in part because you have to. And if you I, my experience has been that the demo for me, is where the great joy occurs. Re-recording and doing the master can sometimes, you know, be like Chinese water torture. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but the great joy is finishing a piece of writing uh, with no emphasis that it's maybe ever going to be released. It doesn't matter. It's hitting a mark that pleases yourself. And um, some of the most joyous uh, musicians I know are in weekend bands. They're not putting expectations. They're not strapping their creativity creativity to the wheels of commerce, you know, where everything is judged by number of units sold or how much you actually make a night, all of those things. They're playing for the right reasons because they want to play. And um, so going into the music business, my advice to somebody would be, all right, what are your motivations? Understand your motivations so that if they don't occur, if, if your success doesn't occur, that doesn't mean you have to shut your creativity down. Um, you know, Margaret Lawrence, uh, the writer, said, you know, um, her art uh, Was her writing, and all the rest were just odd jobs that helped afford her to do the writing. (laughs) And um, in my life, I've done things that allowed me to continue writing. I was a producer at CBC for two years, um, and that's where I was able to not only feed my family but had enough time to write my first album. And uh, so, and then I did commercials to help feed my family so i could continue writing and my i didn't get down on my writing because it wasn't earning me any money i just you understand there's going to be an ebb and flow and things are going to uh occur and sometimes they're not going to occur and you, we have no control over that and and it also prepares you for the rejection that <laughs> what you think is your best piece of work i had a ballad called back to square one It came out It didn't chart. It just sort of felt dead. And I thought, geez, that's the best song I've ever written. Um, But by that time, I knew, well, there you go. So like any artist, uh, some people are going to love you. Some people are going to hate you. And probably the vast majority could care less one way or the other. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the nature of it. So that... I think would be the most I would really have to offer to someone is just to prepare yourself for a bumpy ride and try and keep your creativity joyous and intact. Uh And particularly when you consider, you know, John Cleese said creativity is allowing yourself to play, you know, now a lot of people from bitterness or pragmatism don't allow that. Or if they got shot down, they get so wounded they they never go back to it again. Then uh, Picasso said, uh, "I learned how to paint like Raphael in in four years, and it took me the it's taken me the rest the rest of my life to try and learn to paint like a child." Yeah. So there you have, you know, um, you have on one hand, you know, John Cleese saying learning to play well that's a childlike. You have uh Picasso, chiming in on the same general theme of you know throwing out all the rules and then just trying to paint with that joy and that wide eyed uh optimism that that is indigenous to children, and then there's the Zen saying it's a it's a wise man who maintains a childlike heart. So there you have the core of what I'm talking about in in terms of creativity, how important it is to keep that, that childlike view, to not be jaded, uh, to allow yourself to play, um, and to try and maintain something of a joyous heart. And I think in part for me what has maintained a joyous heart has been all of those other things I've done apart from music sometimes that were still a lot of fun. And uh, so I was, I was able to sort of keep uh, the happiness of my creative processes alive.
0: I I absolutely love that advice. I think that is, Perfect advice, especially that you know everybody coming into the industry. And uh, I say this speaking to my younger self as well. Uh, prior to all of this, I was a, a professional actor, and that uh, getting getting turned down. You know, you get one gig for every twenty auditions that you go to, and it it is challenging to keep yourself motivated and keeping yourself on that road. And I think the advice that you've given here is is absolutely perfect. To the especially the younger people trying to break into the, the world of streaming music where I can record something here in my basement and have it up on Spotify an hour later, uh, you know, yeah. waiting for the clicks to roll in. And when they don't necessarily come, uh, yeah, I think it can be absolutely difficult to to keep that motivation going forward. And uh, yeah. so, Actors
2: in particular, that's, you know, that's because it's, it's even more personal than being sort of yeah. removed from a song or a piece of art. No, the art is you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And,
2: uh, <clears throat> that's where I really admired Marty. Um, yeah. Marty would treat every audition as a performance.
0: Yeah. yeah. So
2: he'd be well prepared and he'd go in and he'd just blow everybody out of the water because yes. he's great.
0: Yes. You know I, I, mean? I had I the, mean, uh, the pleasure of seeing Martin Short and Steve Martin do their show a couple of years ago in Calgary. And, If there is any show that I tell people they have to see, it is those two on stage. It was magical. It was hilarious. Uh, Watching Steve Martin play the banjo inspired me to go out and buy a banjo and learn Clawhammer. Oh, my gosh. His banjo playing is second to none. It is amazing. And, uh, you know, Martin Short, the energy that he brings to that stage and... It's real, and it's true, and it's, it's just so incredible to watch. It truly is.
2: Yeah, that's Marty's passion. He's been, do, he's been like that. I, I, I met him in grade four when we moved <laughs> oh, back to Canada. Geez. We were both in Minnie McBride's class at George R. Allen School and, and, uh, <laughs> in the Hammer.
0: I love that. Well, folks, we've been, and, uh, we've been talking here with Ian Thomas, uh, Juno Award winner, Canadian icon, uh, and, uh, of course, younger brother of comedian and actor Dave Thomas. But, you know, we we know who the real famous brother is. We all know. Right Ian, it's <laughs> Uh so Ian, what what can we expect next from you? When uh, when do we get to see the uh the 2020 or 2021 Ian Thomas album?
2: Well, um geez, right now I'm doing I'm part of collective things. I've just finished doing uh <clears throat> a piece that's going to come out on the net shortly. Uh, I wrote this with, uh, we call ourselves the gear pigs, and because <laughs> um, we all have studios and way more equipment than any of us really need. Um, and it's Paul Ensign, uh, uh, Tim Techner, myself, and, uh, and um, Darcy Heppner. And we've each contributed to this thing, and then I ended up mixing it back at uh, at my place. It's called The Orange Man Makes Me Blue, and it's about uh, (laughs) Donald Trump. (laughs) And my son Jake, who's a filmmaker, is now uh, putting pictures to it, and I think it's probably going to pop up there pretty soon. And I've continued writing uh, with Tim Tickner, who I've written with uh, in the past. Tim was... um, probably the biggest jingle writer in the country, uh, for about 20 years. And, uh, we've collaborated in the past on, um, a handful of songs and he's been sending me these tracks and songs are, uh, I'm getting songs out of them. So I may have about six songs with him that'll be done in about the next, uh, two, three weeks, So that's probably going to come out before I get to my own solo project. Um, Actually, one of my books might come out before an album. Um, So I had luck with my first two novels, and uh, so I've got another one. Um, two of them are sort of up and running. I don't know which one will be finished first. I've finished my own autobiography, but it bores the hell out of me, so I'm going back to it
1: <laughs>
2: to see if I can make it more interesting. <laughs>
1: Oh, I love There's that.
2: something about, I've been there, done that book, as opposed to a, opposed to a novel that isn't nearly the fun.
0: Oh, hey, if it's half as interesting as the stories you've told us today, I will happily be the first one in line to, uh, to grab an autographed copy. <laughs>
2: okay, I'll anyway. hold you to that. I,
0: I do hope that you will. <laughs> Now, look, Ian, we, uh, we asked you for 30 minutes. We've stolen almost 45. So I think it's time we let you get back to your work here. And uh, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I, I think I can easily speak for Brent here when I say we'd love to have you on again. Chat with us about some of your books, some of your other projects. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure.
1: I'll back yeah, at you. It, yeah, this, is, this has been a lot of fun. Great, great chatting with you, and we're really grateful for the time. Okay, and gents. Yes, please uh
0: keep up the good work and say hi to Dave for us.
1: <laughs> I will and both of you guys stay
2: safe in this time of disease.
0: Yes, likewise. Thank you so much, okay. Ian Thomas. Take bad. care. Well, that was our uh, our interview with Ian. Thanks. That was that was cool. Like that I just like my mind can't wrap around everything. Like even when he just dropped in there like Martin Short and I in grade 4. Like that's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah
1: yeah at, at at school uh you know public school on the the uh the central mountain in uh in hamilton you know right right in our back uh, back door back backyard really a a legend um kind of grew up in our midst right
0: yeah you know and and it uh i know like i mentioned it to ian there like uh martin short uh to me like he he is just a mainstay like we i know brent and i we were talking about some of his movies yesterday and uh like the uh, Clifford, if you've never seen Clifford with Martin Short, that's an excellent, excellent movie. But I, I digress, because <laughs> I could go on about <laughs> Martin Short and Steve Martin forever. But of course, we're talking about Ian Thomas. Uh, well, you know.
1: neither of those guys were on the podcast yet.
0: Well, yet. yeah, we'll get them. We'll get them. I feel yep. confident that uh, yep. you know Martin, if you're listening, give me a, give me a shout. We'd love to have you on.
1: <laughs> you know what? You know what I think was really uh, a cool. Uh, piece for me in in experiencing having a chat with Ian is um, I I knew he was going to be a storyteller and after talking to him he blew me away as a storyteller I mean yeah you think of some of the people that he's worked with the places that he's been the the things that he's seen and done uh, just really really cool life story stuff
0: well yeah and you know he's been able to keep this career, uh, with, with heavy momentum since, um, I, I think he had mentioned like the, the mid sixties, you know, he was a, a producer with the CBC in the sixties and, and he's kept it going like his, his songwriting and working on screen and working as a composer and a producer and all these pieces that he's been able to, to keep momentum for that long is like brilliant. And his latest album there with the orchestra, like he's finding new ways to reinvent his sound. And I, I love that about him.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the key thing you said there is, is reinventing. He talked about one stage of his career leading to another door opening and another opportunity. And it just sort of seemed like all through his life, he's been able to uh, reinvent himself and uh, set himself up for, you know, the next opportunity and, and yeah. new adventures. So um, yeah, pretty, pretty fascinating guy and, and, a, an incredible, uh, body of work through his career.
0: Yeah. You know, and, and he, uh, he talked about these, these books that he's writing and, and how his own, uh, autobiography, it bored him. I, I personally, I'll still, I'll jump in and buy one for sure. But, uh, I, I'm going to send him a note and, uh, tell him that like, we would love to get him back on the show, chat about some of his books. I would love to hear more about his writing, what he's, what he's working on there. And, uh, you know, I, I think he's got a lot more stories to share and and I know I, I think I can speak for both of us when I say we'd love to get him back on the show.
1: yeah, absolutely. what what struck me uh, as well was just uh, the joy of music and creating something that seems to come out of him. You know we we talked about the uh, from The Beatles with Love show that he did with the Hamilton Philharmonic. Uh, we talked about, you know, some of his uh, acting roles, yeah. uh, the red-green show, the voiceover work that that he'd done. It he, it just sort of seems like everything uh, has also been about having some fun. And, I mean, yeah, you've got to make a living, and that's obviously first and foremost. But it seems like everything he's done has also, you know, expressly been with the intent of having a, a little bit of uh fun as well yeah
0: no absolutely absolutely so you know i I think that's uh we're gonna wrap it up there we're gonna leave you all with uh, a great interview from ian thomas thank you again to him for being on the show Uh, on behalf of myself miles and my buddy on the phone
1: yeah it's brent here that's gonna go play painted ladies right
0: now (laughs) there we go thank you all so much for listening please subscribe we've got some amazing guests coming up over the next uh, couple of months so uh, keep on listening. Thank you all so much. This has been a Psalm session. Stay safe. Take care. Keep that music dialed up to 11.